Good morning, everyone. Uh, so we're going to be in the next chapter after the scripture reading. Um, the title of the lesson is Balancing Belief, Boldness, and Mercy. First um, Kings 13 is a chapter that has uh, kind of captivated me for a number of years now. I think really ever since reading it on my own at some point. Um, this is a chapter that has some events that I think are a little strange. They can be a little surprising. Um, maybe they'll make you even a little uncomfortable, just how things turn out in 1 Kings 13. Um, and again, I think really what we learn through this is how to balance our belief in the truth, the boldness we need to have in that belief, along with not compromising mercy in those things. And the purpose of this lesson is really um, not just to teach these lessons in and of themselves, but to also lead into some things we'll be talking about next week, Lord willing. We're going to be looking at John chapter 2 when Jesus drove the money changers out of the temple in John chapter 2. And we'll be looking at some progressive lessons that we can pull out of there um, from a New Testament context. Um, so with the scripture reading, it kind of catches us up to what's going on in 1 Kings 13 because 1 Kings 13 is a direct response to everything that Jeroboam does through the end of chapter 12. Um, so chapter 13 literally picks up with a prophet meeting Jeroboam as he is at the altar at Bethel. So just to kind of review, in 1 Kings 12, um, God split the nation of Israel with its territory in half, but really the majority of the tribes of Israel had been split to the northern section in Israel when that was more of the ten tribes. And then in the south, you just have Judah, where the sons of David would continue to reign as kings and where the temple would be as well within Jerusalem. Um, and that would be two tribes. You have Judah and then Benjamin and then really any refugees who flee to Judah because of the unfaithfulness that we've already seen in the scripture reading. But this all happens because of Solomon's sin. Solomon, the son of David, he got involved in incredible apostasy, having, it was like a thousand wives and concubines. He allowed them to create idols after their gods. And so the situation was catastrophic spiritually. So for God to work in damage control, he split Israel from Judah and he hand-selected this man Jeroboam in chapter 11. He promised Jeroboam that if he were to serve God, keep his instructions like David, God would build Jeroboam a lasting house and heritage just like David. And the way that Jeroboam starts his kingdom in Israel in 1 Kings 12, 25 through 33 is not by seeking the Lord like David at all, but in fact, going in the opposite direction, he creates two shrines for these calf idols, one in Bethel, and I've circled these on the map here, so like the orangey, reddish section is the northern Israel territory, the purpley section, that's Judah, um, where the kings of uh, the descendants of David would rule. So one is Bethel, and that's, it's literally like on the tip section between where Israel is and where Judah begins. So it's way on the south. And then up in the north, way at the top in Dan. 
And you notice in verse 30 in chapter 12 at the end it says, they went to worship before the one as far as Dan. Um, ironic because Jeroboam was saying, you know, deceitfully, it's too much to go all the way to Jerusalem. They would go all the way up to Dan to worship at this calf idol that he had made. Um, but you notice what he does here, right? So again, chapter 12, kind of leading into chapter 13. What, Je- what, what Jeroboam is really worried about in, um, and Stephen, we're in First uh, Kings 12. We're looking at verse 26. But what is Jeroboam really worried about? He's worried that he's going to lose the loyalty of the kingdom if the people continue to go all the way to Jerusalem and Judah and properly worship at the temple where God designated for people to come and to worship. So he says, you know, deceitfully, it's too much for you to go all the way over to Judah in verse 28 in Jerusalem. So he sets up these two idols. And then in verse 31 through 33, he appoints his own priesthood, not the priesthood of Levi or the sons of Aaron. He creates a festival day that is an imitation of the Feast of Booths in the seventh month. So in the eighth month, he creates his own feast that he created of his own mind. And then in verse 33, um, he's at Bethel, and he's in the process of making sacrifices or burning incense um, during this time when uh, this feast was happening in Bethel. And so in 1 Kings 13, God sends a prophet from Judah to speak against Jeroboam directly while he's worshiping at Bethel. So let's pick up in chapter 13, and we'll start kind of looking at the events of this chapter here as God responds. Also, just keep in mind, what was the penalty for idolatry within the law of Moses? It was death. So just kind of keep that in mind here, that Jeroboam and the nation of Israel for tolerating, supporting, and contributing to this, they all deserve lawfully at this point the death penalty. So, chapter 13. Now behold, there came a man of God from Judah to Bethel by the word of the Lord, while Jeroboam was standing by the altar to burn incense. He cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and on you he shall sacrifice the priests of the high places who burn incense on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. Then he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be split apart, and the ashes which are on it shall be poured out. Now when the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried out, which he cried against the altar in Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Seize him. But his hand, which he stretched out against him, dried up, so that he could not draw it back to himself. The altar also was split apart and the ashes were poured out from the altar according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the, word of the Lord. So you can imagine how like tense and kind of epic this scene was, right? So I imagine what Jeroboam had created may have even been like an enclosed temple type building where there's this calf in there and you imagine this is a time of feasting and celebration, right? So it's not as if it's just the man of God and Jeroboam. You imagine probably would be something to draw some crowds that the king himself is at this place. So you imagine a great crowd of people and maybe the prophet from Judah is kind of pushing his way through the crowd and then in front of everybody he just calls out against the altar and he gives these signs which are very interesting. The first one is really unique. There's really not many times, maybe actually it's only twice, I think it's really only twice here and with Cyrus, the king of Persia in the book of Isaiah, where before someone's even born, 
God mentions someone by name and what he will do. So he says, Josiah, who's going to be born from Judah, he is going to desolate and desecrate the altars that are being used for worship here and burn the priests, the bones of the priests on the altars. This happens 300 years later, by the way. This is a long time period that's going to pass. Um, and Josiah will be born and he will do exactly that in 2 Kings 23. So that's going to happen in the future. And I think that's meant to demonstrate that everything going on up until that point, it's not as if God is overlooking it. It's not as if God is not paying attention to it. But everything leading up to that point, God is mercifully trying to redeem people out of this system so that he can save them from it. Again, not that he's overlooking it at all in this 300-year process where he's extending mercy. But then he gives this other sign that the altar will be split apart that same day. So there's enough time where Jeroboam, in response, says, Seize him! And you imagine he's like... And maybe it's, it says his hand dried up, so maybe it's like his arm like visibly like changes and everybody can see that. And then you imagine as his arm seizes up, um, which, put that on the board here, but as his arm dries up, that the altar splits and you imagine the gasping in the crowd and people looking around. And that leads us into this next section here in 6 through 10, where we see a great act of kindness from the prophet, but we see also a very good conviction with his mission and why he's there. So remember, this prophet's from Judah. So he, this is a journey he's had to take to come all the way up now to Israel to speak against Jeroboam in the altar. 6 through 10. The king said to the man of God, Please entreat the Lord your God and pray for me, that my hand may be restored to me. So the man of God entreated the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him, and it became as it was before. Then the king said to the man of God, Come home with me and refresh yourself and I will give you a reward. But the man of God said to the king, If you were to give me half your house, I would not go with you, nor would I eat bread or drink water in this place. For so it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall eat no bread, nor drink water, nor return by the way which you came. So he went another way and did not return by the way which he came to Bethel. So I think you know, how... How this all happens with you know, Jeroboam asking for the prophet to pray for him and the prophet does, his hand is restored. I think that shows something really important that relates to the point of the lesson. What it proves is God's intention in sending the prophet, this wasn't destructive, this wasn't malicious. I mean, lawfully, Jeroboam and all the worshipers, they deserve to die. But not only does that not happen, but the altar is broken as a sign and Jeroboam's arm shrivels, but it's restored back to him by the prayer of the prophet and by God acting in response. So what it shows is that God's intention in doing these things was not malicious, but it was to restore, it was to heal, it was to bring back. And if only Jeroboam was as concerned about God as he was about himself. And if only he was as concerned about the damage he was doing to the nation spiritually and the greater reality of that damage as he was his hand. You see how urgent he was? And can't God be that urgent to appeal to us about his word, right? So, interestingly, the prophet refuses to eat with him, right? So this all seems to be going very well. But I want you to think, Jeroboam seeking the prophet's favor. Is that really solving the problem? 
Is that really fixing the very reason why he was sent at all? And think about it. If he did eat with Jeroboam, would that have maybe encouraged something that needed to not be encouraged very carefully? So Jeroboam's change of tone, wanting to be friends, that doesn't reconcile the problem. And when you think about how urgent this mission was and what this says about Israel as a nation at this point, that God says, look, this is so urgent, the situation's so bad, not only don't eat bread, don't even drink water. So you imagine maybe he's pretty thirsty by this time, and God says, don't even go back the way you came. So just to make sure that, you know, it's obvious that, look, this is, this is a bad situation, you need to get in, you need to get out, and people are going to try to follow you, you go back another way, right? So this is a very urgent, very serious mission, but he does it. Really quick, by the way, I think there's a lot of times where I've experienced something like this where what I think we're all prone to do, including myself, but what's happened to me a lot of times is when you know the truth, there are times where you can kind of feel like you have to be the bad guy. Or like someone's like, you know, I hear what you're saying, but you know, let's be buddies, we're on the same team, and, you know, come and eat with me. And you have to say, well, we're not on the same team, though, right? Like, there, there is a problem here, right? And so that can be difficult, but at times it's very necessary, right? That if we know the truth, being bold enough to be able to stand ground and make it clear that there is a divide, and that divide is significant. And seeking the favor of a messenger is not the same thing as fixing the problem that a person may have with God and the truth, right? Anyway, everything's pretty straightforward up to this point. You know, the, the nation of Israel, they haven't repented, but I mean, the young prophet, the man of God, did what he was sent for, going back another way. Everything, in terms of the young prophet's mission, everything's going the way it should. So this is where things get weird. So let's read 11 through 19. Now, an old prophet was living in Bethel. Now, mind you, Bethel is like the sacrilegious idol capital of Israel at this point, right? This idol pop, old prophet is living in Bethel. And his sons came and told him all the deeds which the man of God had done that day in Bethel, the words which he had spoken to the king. These also they related to their father. Their father said to them, which way did he go? Now his sons had seen the way which the man of God who came from Judah had gone, Then he said to his sons, saddle the donkey for me. So they settled the donkey for him and he rode away on it. So he went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak. And he said to him, are you the man of God who came from Judah? And he said, I am. Then he said to him, come home with me and eat bread. He said, I cannot return with you, nor go with you, nor will I eat bread or drink water with you in this place. For a command came to me by the word of the Lord, you shall eat no bread nor drink water there. Do not return by the way by going the way which you came. He said to him, I also am a prophet like you. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with you to your house, that he may eat bread and drink water. Note this. But he lied to him. So he went back with him and ate bread in his house and drank water. Isn't that interesting? There's not many times where in the narration of the story it says, well, that was a lie. So, This old prophet, I don't want to make too much of certain things, but in verse 11, it's at least a little unusual that you have this old prophet in Bethel, and this old prophet was not the one sent to Bethel to speak against it. 
Um, so it's just, you know, it's a little concerning. It's a bit of a red flag. But in this conversation in verse, verse 18, I think we obviously have implications of some pretty serious problems if this person wasn't considered to be unfaithful before. I mean, wow. He brazenly, boldly, speaks against what this young prophet was told by God when there have been signs that confirm this young prophet was definitely sent by God. And his word was definitely the word of the Lord. I mean, the altar split, Jeroboam's hand, old prophet heard about all that. And yet, he is willing to just brazenly lie and say, no, 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 no. An angel spoke to me and God told you you couldn't eat bread, but he told me by an angel, you can come into my house and eat bread. What does that say about this old prophet's attitude about God and his attitude about his word? To be that bold, to just outright lie like that. Well, verse 19 goes back and he eats bread and drinks water. But I want you to think, he didn't eat with Jeroboam, so what made this more appealing? By the way, isn't Israel like a terrible place? Like, you know, he's almost out. He's, he's done everything he needed to. And then, oh, this old prophet comes blazing along on a donkey and finds him. And it's like, you just can't get out. Like, this is, this is a horrible place. But what made this more appealing, right? Well, for one, he's probably really tired. So he's sitting under an oak. I'm imagining he's probably really thirsty by now. He's probably really tired. And so I imagine to hear something that promises relief would be very appealing. But I mean, also, obviously, verse 18 again, he's a prophet just like him. He says, an angel spoke to me and gave me this message. This is the word of the Lord that I've received. So it's like, ah, okay, okay, relief, right? Do you think there's lessons in that? You know, that God had told this prophet something very direct, very clear. He had been following it. But now here's something that directly contradicts that. Should he have done something different here? Maybe had a little bit more caution? The story gets more surprising. So let's look at 20 through 32. We're going to start with 20 through 25. But it gets, it gets more shocking. Verse 20. Now it came about as they were sitting at the table that the word of the Lord came to the prophet who had brought him back. So now the old, unfaithful, lying prophet... God is speaking through him. And he cried to the man of God who came from Judah, saying, Thus says the Lord, because you have disobeyed the command of the Lord and have not observed the commandment which the Lord your God commanded you, but have returned and eaten bread and drunk water in the place of which he said to you, Eat no bread and drink no water. Your body shall not come to the grave of your fathers. It came about after he had eaten bread and after he had drunk that he saddled the donkey for him, but the prophet whom he had brought back, or for the prophet, whom he had brought back. Now when they had gone, a lion met him on the way and killed him. And his body was thrown on the road with the donkey standing beside it. The lion also was standing beside the body. And behold, men passed by and saw the body thrown on the road and the lion standing beside the body. So they came and told it in the city where the old prophet lived, which would have been Bethel. Well... The old prophet lied, and yet he speaks to the young prophet, and it's, it's the young prophet that is killed for his disobedience here. Um, very strange, right? Um, 
So it can seem unfair, right? The old prophet and Jeroboam, it's like there's no consequence. I mean, Jeroboam, not only did he practice active idolatry when the prophet spoke to him, he has seduced the nation of Israel to idolatry. I mean, okay, if we're talking about weight of consequence, and we're going to start weighing things out here, where should there be punishment and justice, right? So, and I think as a reader, God very intentionally is confronting us with this and, you know, kind of having to think through this. So the king and the old prophet just seem to get away scot-free, right? But I want you to think about this, okay? Imagine you wake up in the middle of the night and you're feeling very sick and you don't turn on the lights and you stumble around, you go to the bathroom and you're looking for medicine and you just accidentally and in sincerity, you drink bleach or some other cleaner, you know, that poisons you. You go to the hospital and you explain to the doctor, I, I was just... Yeah, I just, I just woke up and it was dark and I thought I was drinking medicine. And you imagine the doctor saying, whoa, 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 you thought it was medicine? And the doctor then saying, oh, well, if you believed in all sincerity that it was medicine, you'll be fine. You're all right. Would that happen? And so just because we may believe in sincerity, a lie, that doesn't mean its consequences and what, if it, what it is is all of a sudden not real anymore. Right? And we don't, we don't do that with anything else in life. If, if you, in all genuineness, drink poison and you didn't mean to and you thought it was something that was going to be good for you, it's still poison. It's still going to hurt you. It could still kill you. And I want you to think about this, that God was using this young prophet's disobedience as a fourth sign for the nation. You know, so, and I want you to think about the mercy of God that's extending to Israel here. If God is going to hold this young prophet accountable to this, and this is circulating in this area, I mean, okay, lion kills the young prophet. Donkey is standing there, lion standing there, donkey and lion aren't attacking each other, donkey's not running away, lion didn't eat the man of God, so... His dead body's just on the ground. So you imagine people are walking by, and lions have scary faces. So you imagine that people are walking by, and this lion just watches people as they're walking by, and there's that young prophet who spoke against the altar in Bethel. The lion's not attacking people walking by. And so you imagine clearly there is providence in this situation, and God is wanting people to see this and for it to catch their attention. So people in Israel, just following along with what Jeroboam is doing. If God holds the prophet of Judah accountable, will he hold Israel accountable? If he held the prophet, the young prophet accountable, will he hold the citizens who follow Jeroboam's deceit? Will he hold those citizens accountable if he held the young prophet accountable? Absolutely. So, what this does is it demonstrates that not only is the liar accountable, but the citizens who follow the lie, they're accountable too. The lie is not made void. It's not okay. Just because you may have in genuineness not have tested it or looked at it or thought about it more carefully, right? And then we, well, eh, but ignore that. We're going to read 26 through 32 first. Uh, 26 to 32, let's see what happens with the old prophet. Now when the prophet who brought him back from the way heard it, he said, it is the man of God. 
who disobeyed the command of the Lord. Therefore the Lord has given him to the lion, which has torn him and killed him, according to the word of the Lord which he has spoken to him, which he spoke to him. Then he spoke to his son, saying, Saddle the donkey for me. And they saddled it. He went and found his body thrown on the road with the donkey and the lion standing beside the body. The lion had not eaten the body, nor torn the donkey. So the prophet took up the body of the man of God and laid it on the donkey and brought it back. And he came to the city of the old prophet to mourn and to bury him. He laid his body in his own grave and they mourned over him saying, Alas, my brother! After he had buried him, he spoke to his son saying, When I die, bury me in the grave in which the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones. For the thing shall surely come to pass which he cried by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against all the houses of the high places which are in the cities of Samaria. Will you imagine really quick how awkward the rest of that meal was? Because it's like, I don't know what all happened. And I, I, just, I can't explain even, you know, the young prophet staying there. I mean, I don't know why he didn't just fall on his knees like, God, please forgive me, please forgive me. Maybe he did and it's not recorded. But you imagine after the prophet finishes speaking against the young man, it's like, oof. You know, the old prophet sitting there like, sorry. And the young prophet obviously having to deal with what was just told to him by the word of the Lord. So the old prophet hears that what he had said had happened. Lion killed the young prophet and there it stood by his body. Goes and grabs the body, takes it back to Bethel, buries it in his own grave. Now think about it. Look at how he responds to this. Verse 32. He has greater surety that everything that this young prophet said will surely come to pass. Even if God doesn't reach Jeroboam, he reached this prophet. And if he didn't reach Jeroboam, again, God reaching the common person through these things, not just the king, I think there's a lot of people by implication who are going to be moved by these things. One last thing before we talk about Jeroboam. God looking at things from an eternal perspective. This morning, I know not all of us were here. Think about Cain and Abel. God allowing Cain temporarily in the world to be sacrificed to reach Cain. Is that fair? Is that fair for Abel to die, the righteous one? For Cain to be protected, even protected very deliberately by God when he's guilty? And again, think about Jesus, the righteous one, being put to death as a sign that God is going to hold us accountable to his judgment. Is that fair for us to seemingly get off free of charge, but the righteous one is held to a higher standard? How can that be, right? So in this, we see both boldness, conviction, seriousness of truth, but also with God, incredible balance that God's standard of truth isn't changing. It hasn't been compromised. But there's still such grace and mercy being extended at the same time. And I think it's an incredible illustration of all of these things. Let's read verse 33 and 34 and finish the chapter here. After this event, so again, we're kind of bookending where it starts in chapter 12, what Jeroboam did, prophet talks to Jeroboam. So it's really, okay, so, well, what happened to Jeroboam? Verse 33, after this event, Jeroboam did not return from his evil way, but again, he made priests, the high places from among all the people. Any who would, he ordained to be priests of the high places. This event became sin to the house of Jeroboam, even to blot it out and destroy it from off the face of the earth. I'm going to say something um, a little cautiously, but I'm pretty sure, pretty sure, 
This is the first time in the Bible that a judgment statement is that severe. Um, to destroy it from off the face of the earth. I think this is the first time in the Bible. Again, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure there hasn't been any statement of judgment as strong as that statement. God is livid, but still being merciful. So again, does the mercy God is extending mean he's actually validating them or it's not that big of a deal after all? (laughs) It's not what it means at all. So again, we have in this that God is desperately showing grace at great price, but still holding accountable to the truth of his word in the midst of it all. So I want to look at some reflections and applications that I think we need to make as we think about what happened here with Jeroboam, Israel, the old prophet and the young prophet. Let's start with Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. Galatians chapter 1, 6 through 10. And the idea here is, it's not just teachers are responsible for teaching the truth, but again, we have to be careful with what we believe, what we listen to, and our willingness to really do the work of investing into truth, to find answers and have the right heart about that. Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, he is to be accursed. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? For if I were still trying to please men, would not be a bondservant of Christ. So look back at verse 8. So Paul says, obviously, some very strong things here. But is he just saying it about others, right? And think about the old prophet saying, well, an angel came and he gave me a message. And God's taking back what he affirmatively and very clearly commanded you to do. Paul's saying, even if we are an angel from heaven, no, there's no excuse, there's no source good enough. Whether it's an apostle, whether you think you've had some great vision, or you know, clearly an angel, it doesn't matter. What, was, what has been delivered in its simplicity and its instruction was sufficient. And we have to realize that we are all fallible. So there's just... Obviously, there's, there's a wisdom, and in all these applications, there's, just, there's more wisdom needed than what I have in my ability to explain these things. So it's just things that we need to really think on. But how to love each other, how to invest in each other, and to have a humility of entrusting ourselves to each other, entrusting one another, there's just a caution that as we grow in our unity, and our love for one another, and as we're trying to apply gentleness and patience, we have to be very, very careful that we don't lose having a boldness to be willing to challenge one another and confront ideas that maybe even just seem to be ideas that just don't fit with the Bible. Whether it be too strict and advocating for things that really God's word 
does not advocate for those things. We can be too strict with things, but we can also be taking away from God's word and not being very bold or clear with things that the Bible says. And we are all fallible. And by fallible, I mean we are all just people, right? So I could be wrong and I could present something that's wrong. Older brethren, who we may enjoy listening to their sermons, they could end up beginning to teach strange things and flattering things in their heart that they should not. And those ideas need to be challenged and confronted, right? And so Paul puts himself in this category that even if he teaches something contrary, he needs to be confronted, disregarded, and challenged on that. And think about him saying that they should be accursed. Just like in 1 Kings with that strong judgment statement that God was going to blot out Jeroboam's household from the face of the earth, truth is a serious matter to be treated seriously, right? We have an example of this in chapter 2 where Peter was showing partiality to the Jews among Gentiles and Paul needed to confront Peter, not privately, publicly. And so we have to be careful not only how we listen to the truth, but we have to be willing to recognize I need to be challenged. And it's healthy in a way to be confronted. It's not that we're looking for opportunities to challenge each other with the truth, but we certainly have to be humble enough to recognize that I may need to have things that I say, especially from the pulpit, that if there's questions about that or if there's something that you think that, well, that doesn't really seem to make sense or really fit with the Bible, then there's a goodness in approaching me and talking to me about that. And I certainly have a responsibility to be humble enough to listen and receive that as, as we all do. So I know this, this might sound severe, but I think this is something important to keep in mind. This idea of being coddled is like giving excessive care. It'd be like treating an adult like a baby. You know, it's like, you know, you're always just kind of hitting with pillows and everything's okay all the time. Anyway, we can't be coddled to heaven. But we can be coddled to hell. You know, you think about Peter, right? As an apostle, not only during Jesus' ministry did Peter need to be confronted on multiple occasions and challenged, but Wow, Peter showing partiality to the Jews among Gentiles when he was sent to Cornelius? Peter knows better. Of anybody, Peter knows better. Not even Peter as an apostle was exempt from being fallible and needing to be challenged even very directly, even very openly, right? And so we can't be coddled to heaven. We certainly can be coddled to hell. And so again, just to be clear, it's, it's not that we're looking at each, each other with suspicion all the time or looking for opportunities to challenge each other. That's not it at all. It's simply that we invest into the truth and we are striving very diligently to keep each other accountable to what God's word says and the simplicity of things that are clearly said in God's word. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 9. And this is more on the idea of just trying to teach others. You know, so the prophet in 1 Kings 13, he was on a mission and he was caught while on that mission doing a good thing. And he wasn't even able to make it back to Judah. And I think there's very important lessons because you, you may think, well, maybe he just shouldn't have gone. Maybe he should have just stayed in Judah. I don't think that's the point. 
1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27, as Paul is talking about becoming all things to all men to bring people to the gospel, he says in verse 24, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in a game, in the games, exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that, okay, notice this. Because Paul's not saying this in just a general way. We're like, yeah, in our faith, you know, we need to be disciplined. He's meaning something very specific here. So I'll pick it up again. So that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Do you catch what he's saying there at the end? What he's saying is, as he's trying to reach people and show grace and give mercy and build these relationships with people who don't know the truth or maybe they need to understand the truth better than they do, there's an inherent danger and reality that Paul's influenced by that. That's just the reality. The world does influence us. Relationships, they, they do influence us. That's, that's just the reality of it. If you're in school, if you're in high school, if you're in college, at your workplace, the reality is we are influenced by our culture and by the world. And it's dangerous. And so Paul's acknowledging in verse 27 Well, he needs to discipline himself so that when he's preaching to others that he will not lose himself in the process. I want to talk about this for a moment. Satan is a master craftsman in twisting noble intentions that are not carefully guarded by godly wisdom. I've known so many people who are building relationships with people and At some point, they had noble intentions and they lose themselves along the way. There's a preacher I know of. He was always studying with atheists at a college and investing himself into this thing and it just, it consumed him. And he had noble intentions. trying to teach people, learn about atheism, learn about how to make a defense for the gospel. He lost himself along the way and he went off the deep end heavily. Wrote a book about his falling away. I've known friends who have built relationships with people where they were adamant, I'm trying to teach this person. They lose themselves along the way and they fall away in the process. That's what happened to the young prophet. He was on a noble mission. He was obedient along the way. But those intentions, we need to recognize that matters of truth, they are very serious. And we do need to be guarding truth and our belief in the truth with godly discipline and wisdom. So, here's the thought. Well, if it's so dangerous, maybe we should just withdraw from the world. You know, and maybe there is a time where it's like, okay, these relationships are really influencing me away from God, and so I think there is a time with wisdom to say, I need to step away from these relationships, right? But the mature solution we're working towards is not to withdraw from the world. God knew the danger he was sending the prophet into, And there would be prophets like Elijah in Israel and Elisha in Israel, and they would succeed and do well. So the solution isn't that we abandon the world. It's that we recognize that we have to fortify our resolve and that we need to invest more deeply into Christ and his word so that we can help and serve the world to know God, right? Think about it like an NFL player, someone in Major League Football, um, 
you know, think about all the stuff that they wear. Imagine somebody wants to play an NFL game, right? Maybe it's a player for your favorite team, but they want to go out without any equipment. Will they be allowed to do that? Well, think about, let's say they were somehow, they were actually allowed to play with no equipment and it's a defensive lineman. I mean, he's going to die in one game, right? Because, I mean, he's going to be hit full throttle by people who are trained to destroy you and hit you with all their strength. You know, so the idea is, the NFL, there's regulations, there's warnings, there's equipment because you are inherently doing something dangerous. Evangelism is good. We need to reach people. We need to build relationships. We need to be merciful. We need to be gracious. We need to be kind. We need to be serving the people around us and initiating those things. But not in the foolishness of thinking that what we're doing is not spiritually dangerous because Paul is an apostle was not so arrogant to think that he could be the hero of the world and not recognize that his salvation was in danger if he was not careful. So we need balance. We need discipline and we need wisdom. We need to know God's word. And it's not that we're trying to nitpick people when we're, for instance, talking to them about God and his word. It's not that we're trying to you know, argue with people and just you know, stir up contention it just takes so much wisdom, again, and discipline to reflect on the need to be bold. We need to be bold. We need to be willing to say the necessary things when it's very difficult and very uncomfortable. We need deep convictions, rooted convictions, that even if the world all around us does not believe the truth in its simplicity, we are still going to hold to the truth. Even if brethren here that we love and respect, if, if I fall away, we need conviction to just believe what God's word says, right? But we need to have mercy in the midst of those things. And again, the wisdom that it takes, it's challenging. But there's a big difference between abandoning that wisdom and just humbly striving to apply it and find it while accomplishing God's love for the world around us, right? So we need a balance in belief boldness. We need mercy. And I hope that 1 Kings 13 helps illustrate those points very powerfully. If you're here this morning and you have not obeyed the truth, I would encourage you to consider that when Jesus died on the cross, that was like the young prophet's death and the promise that one day everybody participating in that idolatry was going to be judged by God. When Jesus died on the cross, that was it. All mankind is held in subjection to Jesus' death. We can either respond to that in humility or fight against it and find ourselves in judgment still before God and be cast away from him. There is an urgency and a seriousness to the truth. Let's strive to apply those things and consider them carefully as we stand and sing the invitation song.